Well, friends, what do Christians mean when they say that they hope in God? What do Christians mean when they say that they hope in God? And maybe you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of this Jesus that we've been singing about, and you've often wondered, what, what in the world do Christians mean when they say they hope in God? They're always talking about hope. What does it mean? Is it, is it simply wishful thinking? I sure hope that God does this. Is it simple lamp rubbing, as if God is some kind of genie that we have to summon with our wishful thinking? When Christians say that we have hope, does it mean that we simply toss a penny into the fountain that is God, hoping that He will give us what we want? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, let me put the question directly to you. Are you wishfully waiting for God to grant you all of your wishes? How does God then intend to show the world what true hope really is? What is hoping in God? And how does God intend to show the world what true hope really is? And to make it even broader, how has He already done this throughout the ages? In his book, A History of Christian Missions, Stephen Neal observes how this really took place in the early church, stating that by A.D. 300, there was really no part of the Roman Empire which had not become penetrated by the gospel message of Jesus Christ in some way. That Christians, by A.D. 300, had really spread the gospel to every corner of the Roman Empire. Why? Well, he offers really six reasons. Let me mention a few that he offers in his book. Number one, that these new Christian communities commended themselves by the very purity of their lives. They displayed hope in God. Number two, as one church historian put it, at that time many Christians felt their souls inspired by the Holy Word with a passionate desire for perfection. They desired holiness. And what was the first way that holiness displayed itself? Their first action in obedience to the instructions of the Savior was to see their goods and to distribute them to the poor. And then number three, what moved the gospel to the reaches of the Roman Empire? The persecution of Christians and their readiness to suffer and die a dramatic way had great impact on unbelievers. This is what Stephen Neal observes. Under the Roman Empire, Christians had no legal right to exist. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And so, friends, how are we meant to display our hope in God to the world? What does it look like for a Christian to have hope in the world in which we live? Well, this brings us back to our study of Acts this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. If you forgot your Bible this morning, that's okay. There's some there in the pews in front of you. And Acts 23.12 is on page 877. Now, if you're brand new to a Bible, when you get to page 877, just look for that big number 23 and then scroll your finger down to get to that small number 12. And that's where I'm going to begin reading in just a moment. Now, normally I like to read a passage here at the beginning of the sermon, but this morning, because we have such a long passage, I'm going to be reading the, the, the narrative as we move throughout the passage. So I won't have us all stand for one reading here at the beginning. But let me do go ahead and give you my four points from our passage this morning, if you'd like to write these down, if you're the note-taking type. Here they are. Number one, having hope during tribulations. Having hope during tribulations. We'll see this in chapter 23, verses 12 through 22. And number two, having hope under the state. Under the state. That's a capital S, under the state. And we'll see this in chapter 23, verses 23 through 35. Point number three, we're going to look at having hope before the world. Having hope before the world, and this is in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 24. And then finally, we're going to look at having hope in the waiting. Having hope in the waiting in verses 22 through 27 of chapter 24. If you didn't get all those, I'll mention them when we get to them. But friends, as we look at this passage today, what I hope that you see in this section of Acts as Paul remains under arrest 
And as Jesus remains bent on completing His mission of the gospel going to the ends of the earth, I want you to see here that we are reminded no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can have hope in God because He is forever at work fulfilling His purposes in and through us. And my prayers as as we consider that is that no matter what situation you may find yourself in this morning, whether you are on a mountaintop or you are deep in the darkest valley, no matter what situation you find yourself in, that you too can have hope in Jesus as the one who redeems, as the one who establishes our steps, and as the one who is coming again to make all things new. So let's begin by considering what it looks like to have hope during tribulations. Go ahead and look with me then at Acts 23, verses 12 through 22. Let me read it for us this morning. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So what do we find here in this opening passage? Well, we find that there's this plot to kill Paul. This plot that is put together by a fairly large group of men who are going to aim to kill him. But we find then by the end that he's again saved by these ordinary acts that in turn become extraordinary works of God. And this is helpful because in our times of stress and anxiety, God too is often at work behind the scenes in ways that we don't see. We consider this by looking at the plot there to kill Paul in verses 12 through 15. It arises among a group of Jews who have become, in, have become more and more angry and angry at him because of all that he said and all that he's done. See there that more, more than 40 men swear to neither eat nor drink until Paul is killed. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're already getting a little bit hungry for lunch. But that's a pretty big oath. Like they're either going to kill Paul or they're going to starve to death. Try which doesn't bode very well for like, their strength and being able to overcome him because they're just going to be famished and more and more hungry the longer it takes. But these guys are this committed to killing Paul. They wanted to kill him because of his teaching, specifically of Jesus fulfilling the law and rising from the dead. We're going to see this come up later in point three. And what do they do in this plot, this conspiracy as it calls it here? Well, they start to bring in the Pharisees and the religious leaders and making them complicit in it. We see how amazing, amazingly how quickly it is that they are willing to break the very law themselves. I mean, just consider these verses. Exodus 20, verse 13, what does it tell us? You shall not murder. Or, or Leviticus 19, 12, what does it tell us? You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 19, 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Or let's even move to the wisdom literature, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste 
to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Friends, that's exactly what we see these 40 men doing, and that's exactly what they are bringing in the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the religious leaders. The reason I bring all of this up because it helps us understand the very heart of sin. I mean, I wonder if you see this in your very own lives, that when we put our identity in something other than God, that as they had in, in their very religion in Judaism, when they wanted something more than God Himself, which is idolatry, it actually caused them to break the very laws and to turn and rebel against the very God that they claimed to follow. It is amazing when we wrap our identities up in the things of this world, when we have idolatry in our hearts, how quickly it makes allowance for sin. How quickly it, it, how easy it is for us to become the kind of people who say, I know God's Word says that, but this is my situation. Christian, I wonder if there's sins in your very life and in your conscience that you have ignored even this morning. Well, then we get to the, really the high part of the story of this whole narrative that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. There's a lot of uncertainty here at this point. You've got to think about there's these 40 men who are conspiring to kill this one man, Paul. 40 on one is not good numbers. And so we find the only thing we ever find out about Paul's family, that he has a sister who has a son. And this son comes... And he's there, and, and, and somehow he hears about it. We don't know how he hears about the plot, but he comes to Paul and tells him. He comes to him and shares with him exactly what's going to happen. And so Paul sends him to the tribune. Now, just to remind you of this, when we hear the word tribune, we often think of a, a large body. But, but here, in this time, the tribune is one specific person. Okay, his name's Lysias. He's going to come up here again in a moment. But Paul's nephew goes to him. And for some reason... God's grace, the tribune takes him seriously. I mean, this whole episode, if you look at it, seems to have an expectation of failure. I mean, if you're reading this for the very first time, you come to it thinking, okay, that's just not going to work. I mean, Paul himself may not have believed his nephew. The guard could have come to get him and said, no, nah, you're not going to talk to Paul today. I don't feel like letting you into the barracks. The plot could have been carried out more quickly than it was. Or the tribune could have said, I don't have any time for this young man who's come to me with some stuff about Paul. I don't really care. And yet every step of the way, we see God's providence and these little acts begin to build up. But friends, what is it that Luke intends to teach us here? Well, he intends to teach us that we can look to God with hope when we ourselves are under pressure as well. I, I mean, I realize that none of us are under arrest. I realize that none of us have been plotted against for our very lives, at least as far as I know. If, if that's the case, please come tell your pastor afterwards so I can pray for you and we can work through that. But none of us, our lives are under threat because of following Jesus, as far as I know. But what of our work? How many of you feel pressure at work? Whether it's pressure because of your faith or just general pressure from the workload itself. What of our parenting? How many of you feel at times like you're in Paul's shoes with your parenting? Or your friendships with one another? That there's pressure? What of the ways of the world that tells us how to cope with stress? By vegging out or by taking up some hobby or some medicine? How does your heart handle times of uncertainty. This is exactly where we find Paul here. And yet we find him hoping in God. We find him continuing to move forward and to remain steadfast, using wisdom to send his nephew to the tribune as a last-ditch effort. This is what it looks like for us in our everyday lives as well, to trust in the very providence of God. And to do it with confidence. This is what John Piper said in his recent book entitled Providence. He said, The world and even thousands of Christians give no praise and thanks to God for millions of daily life-sustaining providences because they do not see the world as the theater of God's wonders. They see it as a vast machine running on mindless 
natural laws. And friends, I give that to you this morning to ask, how have you seen God and His providence at work in your own life in these small ways? What we learn here is that Jesus is really able to complete His mission in these small ways as well as in large ways, and that His hand of providence is always upon us in good and in bad. This becomes even more important in the next point. So let's consider the next section in verses 23 through 35 as we consider the second thing, and that's having hope under the stake. Let me pick up for us in verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So what happens here? We see that while God preserved Paul, giving him wisdom and how to navigate the hatred of the mob. He's given him wisdom in how to navigate this plot that's come up against him. That he finds himself now at the mercy of these authorities, of these civil authorities, of the very Roman Empire in which he inhabits, of the state itself. They were making all the decisions for him. And it's here that we learn a valuable lesson about having hope. That we can have hope in God even when we have very little say in the direction of our lives. First, just consider the tribune's extreme measures here that he takes. I mean, at this point, he's got to be tired of these Jewish leaders. They have got to be the proverbial thorn in his side because they continue to badger him and work up all of this hate and anger against this guy, Paul. And it's sucking up all of his time. Especially because he knows Paul to be a Roman citizen. And so he's concerned to protect Paul. Consider the ways that he does so. First, he has them go out at the third hour, which would have been at 9 o'clock at night. So he, he's getting him out under the secrecy of night. How many people does he send with him there in verse 23? Well, it's actually more than half of the Roman military force that was in Jerusalem. For this one man. So 40 against 1 turns into 40 against half of the military presence in the city of Jerusalem. And they go as far as Antipatris in verse 31. We see that. And from there, those 70 horsemen that had originally accompanied him go all the way to Caesarea. Here's my question for you then. What would be your thought if you were in Paul's situation, in Paul's condition? Perhaps you would be tempted to think that maybe the Roman Empire is actually on the Christian side. Maybe the Roman Empire will help us. Maybe they are for us. Perhaps that Christianity may not be hated so much after all. But we really, in the letter there in verses 26 through 35, find that the tribune is really just passing the buck on to the next guy. Now Luke makes this clear that this is not an exact quotation, but, but a summary perhaps from Paul himself. And he essentially there in that letter that he writes to Felix, the governor, Claudius Lysias tells him essentially why Paul is being sent to him. Lysias says that he rescued Paul because he found he was out he's a Roman citizen. He, he fails to mention how he found that out. You will remember it was right before he was about to have him beat that Paul himself tells him he's a Roman citizen. He leaves that out. He leaves that part out, and, but most importantly he states that Paul comes 
with no official charge against him. And isn't that interesting? That he, he's been in the barracks, he's been imprisoned, he's been held up, and yet when he sends him to Caesarea, to Felix the governor, he says, but I actually have no reason for this man to be imprisoned. The Jews have no reason for this man to be imprisoned, much less for him to be killed. But here he is. And so he's forced there to wait out, wait it out until the Jewish leaders arrive. So Paul arrives and he is immediately put on the docket. Now, we can tend to skip over this portion if we're reading it on our own, just thinking, oh, it's some legal hullabaloo and it's just a letter that he's writing. But I don't want you to miss the implications of this for Paul and the applications of it for us. And what do we find in all of this? We find that Paul's imprisonment and being passed around is not ideal. It's, it's not fun by any means for Paul, but it, it's pretty unenjoyable to be taken in the dark of night on horseback, surrounded by soldiers to, to a place you have no idea where you're going. You, know not, you do not know how you're going to be received and then have to sit and wait for those who have accused you and who hate you and who want you dead to show up and give a defense. In reality, this is not how any of us would write the story, is it? You think back to what Jesus had just told him in 2311. Look back there. Jesus comes, the Lord himself comes and stands beside him in the night and says to him what? Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome. Now for Paul in that situation, if you're in that situation, how is this going to happen? And maybe you come up with some fanciful ideas about how you're going to get to Rome and, and how you're going to give a testimony and you're going to stand in front of everybody. It's going to be this glorious thing and there's going to be mass conversion. It's going to be a real revival. And yet here's Paul in prison, waiting it out, but making his way there. This is not how we would have written the story. And friends, many of us may feel similar in our own situations. We are reminded here that Jesus' ways are not always our ways, but He is, in fact, fulfilling His promise. His promise to Paul. And He isn't fulfilling His promises to us. Even in the ways in which we are living, in the culture, in the times, in the nation in which we are living. A few interesting things happened this week in our own nation and even in our own state that you may be familiar with. I saw a clip this week even from Chuck Todd, who's the host of Meet the Press, where he gave some of the approval ratings for our president, stating that it's discouraging times for the Democrats because the approval ratings continue to plummet for our president. And the trust in our government at large in our country is on the decline itself, that people are no longer trusting or think that our government can do much of anything. The debate over health care, we find, is boiling into the streets at this point. And then we ourselves in this state get a new governor who seems to align himself with Christians. Where does that leave us? Well, friends, I don't know about you, but the temptation for me is to have my hope rise and fall on the establishment of government. That when something goes poorly for someone I don't like, or something goes well for someone I do like, or something goes poorly for someone I do like, or something goes well for someone I don't like. My temptation is to rise and fall in hope based on what's happening at the top. And we can be there. Maybe if this person is in office, we'll be okay. And maybe if this law gets passed or this bill makes it through, we'll be okay. Maybe if we could only turn this way of thinking and culture, everything will be okay. But we're reminded here that there is no hope to be placed finally and fully in those who lead us from a fallen place. We are reminded here from Paul that we must finally and fully put our hope in Jesus. Because He is, as we sang earlier, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That He is working amidst our governor's leaders, our government's leaders, that he is working in the midst of cultural upheaval, that he is working in the midst of sinful and corrupt officials, that he is pressing on towards that which he has promised. Friends, don't miss what we find so long ago in 
Zechariah, the minor prophet, in 14.9, he says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day there will be one Lord, and His name the only name. We learn that we cannot finally put our hope in fallen people who attempt to lead us in this world, but we can only put our hope in the one who will be standing at the end of time, and that is Jesus Christ. It seems this reality is what guides Paul into the very trial. He finds himself, as we come to point three, having hope before the world. Let's pick up in chapter 24. I'm going to read all the way to verse 21. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews and throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But for some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So now as Paul is faced with the hatred of his, of his accusers, standing before them face to face, standing before Felix the governor who will decide his very fate, Paul stands and gives a defense. But what he gives a defense of is not of himself finally and fully, but of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection in particular itself. And he teaches us what it means to care more about the kingdom of Jesus than the kingdom of being right. And just consider this first, how there we find Ananias and the leaders and this guy named Tertullius, they come and they're going to hate on Paul. They're going to throw all they have at him. We get this speech from this guy here, Tertullius, which, which is a Greek name, which may very well mean that he himself is a Gentile, a Gentile lawyer that they have brought in, and he does exactly what lawyers tend to do. He says, oh, great Felix, you are so awesome and so wonderful, and you cause so much peace here in our nation, which is a big old lie. If you look back at throughout history, Felix was not a peaceful guy at all. And so he's just speaking flattering words, but he goes on to give three specific charges to Paul. You may notice them there in verse 5. He says that he starts riots everywhere he goes. And then again in verse 5, he says that he is a leader of this sect, this, this religious group called the Nazarenes. And then finally in verse 6, he says, this Paul, he, he has profaned the temple. Well, what of these charges? If we think back through the book of Acts, are they true? Is he speaking about things that actually happened? Well, no, we see that 
charge one, when it came to the riots, Paul may have been the cause of the riots, but he was not the instigator. Do you understand what I'm saying? He showed up and he spoke the truth and the riots happened out of the hate that was in the Jews' heart. Paul did not show up in those places to cause riots, to cause an angry mob. Then we'll show him down to charge three right quick, that Paul was teaching about the temple, but he never openly profaned it. He did not show up in an unclean manner. You'll remember just a few chapters ago that he actually had been purified. He brings this up himself. But what of that second charge there in the middle? That he was the leader of a sect of the Nazarenes, specifically of this Jesus of Nazareth. This is actually the first time this is mentioned in all of Acts, that Paul was leading this sect. You see that the Jews, for them, they had not yet even wrapped around their minds all that Christianity, all of these followers of this man named Jesus of Nazareth, all that it was about. They had not begun to understand exactly what the Christians were proclaiming. They had still believed that this Jesus of Nazareth was just a big pretender, that he was a big fake and that he had all of these followers, but in reality, somehow they had faked his resurrection and they were really just following a dead guy. Friends, what we find here is what we still continue to find in our world today, that there are many false and wrong-headed views of Jesus. And we have to be ready to give an answer, as Peter says, for the hope that we have in Him. So of all three charges, we find Paul take up and accepts the second one. But otherwise, we there in verses, in verses 10 through 21, we find Paul's big answer. He begins by stating the obvious that Felix is the governor and that he has judged this nation for many years and he'll cheerfully give a response. You notice that he does not say anything flattering to Felix. He just states the obvious. You're here, you're the judge, and I'm happy to give you a response. That's it. What is his response? Well, he covers eight points. I'm just going to mention them really quickly and I'll mention the verses if you want to write like a number one through eight next to those in your Bible. And he says all of these can be verified there in verse 11. Number one, I went up to the temple to worship. You can prove it. I was there. Number two, I was neither arguing nor causing trouble. You'll remember he went there just to simply to worship God, and he goes during it Passover. Number three, in verse 13, the Jews have no proof of any charges. Number four, in verses 14 and 15, that he is not wayward, but a follower of the way, which they call a sect. In verse 17, number five, I came to Jerusalem with a gift and offerings. He comes to Jerusalem with gifts, with offerings to be made in the temple. Number six, in verse 18, that he was purified in the temple when they found him. And number seven, in verses 18 through 19, the Jews from Asia were the ones who came and stirred up trouble, and they aren't here. And then finally, number eight, in verses 20 through 21, my accusers know the only issue is the resurrection. So in this short little speech, Paul hits eight things. And he says, all of these things, they will say, and it can be proven. I was there, I did this, I did this, I did this, and that's it. But I want to make a special note there about the one that's in the middle. Number four, in verses 14 and 15. Let me read those verses again because they encapsulate everything else that's going on in Paul's life here. Picking up verse 14. But this I confess to you. That's important there. Here's what his confession itself. That according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What is Paul confessing here? What is he admitting here in the face of the world, in the face of the hate of his accusers? What is he saying? He's saying that I am a follower of the way. If you have a good translation of the scriptures, the, it's, it's capitalized, way. It, it's referring, and we've seen this phrase come up over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Specifically, Paul tends to use this phrase, the way, to talk about Jesus Christ himself, who says what? I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. It's shorthand for Jesus. He says, I follow Jesus, and I follow Jesus by worshiping the God of our fathers. He couches his very following of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament itself. That this Jesus is the one who gives us and takes us, gives us a way to worship the God who is held out in the law and the prophets. It's a shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And Jesus' followers, he's saying here, are heirs of the promise. That the followers of Jesus in these communities that are rising up in the cities are the faithful expression of God's followers today. And this is what Jesus' resurrection has created. Do you realize that, friends? That this is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ creates. That He has come to give us newness of life. And not just individual life, but He has come to give us new societies as local churches. His resurrection makes it possible that we would walk in Him and live in Him. Now, how can we speak of our hope to the world today then? I mean, again, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you see the very reality, the very truth, the very nugget of our faith held out in these verses. We see the work of Jesus then held out in two places. First, in His Word. The work of Jesus is held out in His very Word. This is what Paul says. He goes on to write it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for sin according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to know who the real Jesus is. He's not what you see on the History Channel or read about in the magazines. The Jesus of Scripture fulfilled everything the Old Testament called God's people to fulfill. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never turned against God. And He never turned against man. And despite His sinlessness, He went to the cross and He died. It's there upon that bloody cross that He made a payment for our sins. That He made His very way to be reconciled back to God. Through His blood, through His body being crucified, we have reconciliation with God in Christ alone. But He did not stay dead, but rose again from the dead. And friends, the good news for us is that He is permanently resurrected. We sing this often, and I hear the words of love, but the, the Christ, He cannot die. When you're seeing that sometimes, you're like, what does that mean? Yeah, He did. No, we're saying He can't die again. He is permanently risen from the dead. And this is what the Scriptures testify to. If you want to know God, look at His Word. If you want to know Jesus, look to the Word, not just the New Testament, but the Old. But there's a second way that we see Jesus displayed besides the Word. And that's in His people. This is what being a local church is all about. This is what being a member of a local church is all about. That we join together, that we promise to come together in a covenant relationship to display Jesus to celebrate who Jesus is, to show that Jesus is King in our lives. Not money, not stuff, not the government, not the world, but that Jesus is our King. And so we seek to display that. That we're not followers of a philosophy, but we are followers of a person. Here, spoken of as the way. Jesus is who we live for. Though it's imperfect, and so Christian, take up this passage. I want you to look at it and think about it because we have such a good picture of what warfare evangelism looks like here. This is battlefield evangelism at its best. That Paul does not spend his time trying to maneuver or cajole or manipulate things into his favor. He simply states the facts and he gives the gospel. And that's it. And he trusts God. He has hope that God Himself will do all the work necessary. And so, 
we realize that our living for the gospel is what is key in displaying our hope to the world, even when it doesn't have the success that we may want. And that's what we see in the final point in verses 22 through 27 of chapter 24. Let me read our final section for us. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, there it is again, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Just to stop here, because I, I don't have this in my notes, I just want to point this out. You see how Felix then hands it back over to Lysias again? Like, it's just like ping pong between the government here, okay? Just pointing that out. All right, let's keep going. Verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It's not the way that we expected things to go, was it? In this final section, we find Paul having given such a wonderful, godly, biblical answer. We find him still in chains, kept from freedom for over two years. But we learn no matter how we may be hindered in this life, in our own time, there is still work to be done for God's kingdom. There is still a witness that must be held out. Just consider there Felix's own response. It says there in verse 22 that he has an understanding of the way. We're going to find out that that's, that's not really the case when it gets really pressed it does not help in the end that he has this understanding, some marginal understanding of the way. He keeps Paul in prison, and he tells the Jews, he tells Paul that they're going to have to wait on Lysias. But Lysias never comes in, in over two years, or the Jews give up and go home. Either way, Paul is kept in prison here. But he is kept in prison with some benefits. And you have to think what the conversations look like as some of Paul's friends show up to minister to him. These are the very friends, I'm assuming, who told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Please don't go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us that you should not go. It's just going to end badly, Paul. Do you think they showed up at the jail and said, we told you so? I'm guessing they didn't. I'm guessing they were kind and generous friends who wanted to know, Paul, why did you do this? And why are you here? We're reminded here of the importance of friendship. It probably sustained Paul in so many ways. But we find here again, Paul is given another ear by the authority, Felix, and his wife, Drusilla, who's a, who's a Jew herself. And what does he talk about? It tells us. What does he not talk about? He doesn't spend his time talking about freedom and how Felix should let him go and maybe how he can get out of this situation and, and, and arguing for himself and making a case for himself. He spends his time talking about, verse 24, faith in Jesus Christ. Even as he is hindered by chains, as he continues to be in prison, every chance he gets to be free, he doesn't speak about freedom, but speaks about freedom in Jesus Christ. He talks about righteousness and self-control and, and the coming judgment there in verse 25. And what do these things represent? Well, they represent the whole gospel themselves and what the gospel itself does. That there is only hope for us through faith in Jesus Christ, not through freedom. Which Christ? The one who makes us righteous, he talks about. Speaking about our justification, being made right before God. The Jesus, the one who makes us self-controlled, the sanctifying Jesus, the one who makes us more and more like Him and the one who comes and judges when we receive our glorification. It's at this point that we find Felix, like I said, doesn't actually understand the way, and that he in fact has mixed motives, hoping that Paul will give him some money. 
didn't know that Paul was a tent maker, and if he's in jail, he's going to have a hard time making tents. So therefore, he doesn't have much money during these days. But we see here that the passage ends by telling us that Paul is left waiting in prison for two years at the mercy of the state, at the mercy of the haters. Friends, I don't know what you thought when we got into all of this, but if you assumed that Jesus' mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth was going to be a quick mission, you have been sorely disappointed. And the same remains true for us. If you thought that following Jesus meant that you were going to have a super easy life, and that things were always going to go smoothly, I'm assuming it doesn't take following Jesus very long to find out that is not the case. So many of us look back at our lives and we see all of these trials, all of these tribulations, all of these hardships that we've come from and we've come through. And on the front end, we would never would have chosen them. But on the back end, we can look and we can see, as Paul does here, that Jesus has, in fact, been at work. Because by the end of this passage, though he sits in prison, Paul is one step closer to Rome. He is one step closer to taking the gospel mission where it was meant to go. And so what does it look like for us waiting in times like this? What, what do we do? How do we sit? How can we have hope in God in times of waiting? We can't fully comprehend what it was like for Paul, but we have our own seasons of waiting. Some of you are in seasons of waiting. The future is uncertain and you don't know what's coming or you've just come out of seasons of uncertainty and you're entering into a new season. What does it look like? Well, real quick, let me give you six qualities in times of waiting. I won't expand on these. Maybe we'll save this for like a Sunday evening sermon series in the new year. But let me give you six qualities, six things that I think as Christians, the Holy Spirit has given us and, and, and we're being foolish for not taking them up. Number one, godly patience. Taking up godly patience. Number two, prayerful submission. Submitting ourselves to God in prayer. Number three, Word-centered decisions. Not man-centered decisions, but word-centered decisions. Number four, fighting for contentment. Fighting for contentment where you're at. Some of you are like, I'm going to scratch that one off. No, leave it there. Number five, seeing every opportunity. Paul could have sulked, he could have fallen apart, he could have complained and grumbled and whined and fell apart in prison. But instead he saw it as an opportunity to speak of the gospel. And number six, the glue that binds them all together, if you will, is resilient joy. It's in every situation finding that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not the joy of this world, not the joy of man, not the joy of all of the comforts that are offered to you, but the joy of the Lord is resilient. Can I give you a few verses to back those up in case you're like, I don't like those, I don't want to listen to those. Don't take it by my authority. Maybe jot these down. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary for doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So how are you doing in taking up hope in this life? Are there things where you feel like it is hopeless? Are you, there are areas or seasons where you feel like there is no hope to be had, and you are wiggling and worming your way out of all of those trials as much as you can? Or are you hoping in the God who is faithful throughout all generations? 
In each of these scenes, Luke shows us two main things I want to point out before we close. Number one, Paul had zero control over his life. Did you notice that? In each of those points, Paul had zero control. There was a mob who was trying to kill him. There were leaders who were passing him around. There were authorities who were accusing him. There was a governor who kept him in prison. No control. And yet, in each of those seasons, in each of those situations, there was a Christ who was in complete control. There was a Savior who was reigning on his throne. In every one of these seasons that Paul has found himself in, Jesus has not gotten up and went to do something else. He has sustained and maintained the mission in which he has called his people to. And friends, the same is true for us. Whatever season we find ourselves in, we have a Savior. A Savior who led the way before Paul. But like Paul, Jesus himself was hated by his own people. But unlike Paul, Jesus was the cause. He, who he was in his very self, was the cause of their hate. Like Paul, Jesus was imprisoned and tried. But unlike Paul, Jesus gave no answer, sealing his very death. Jesus made no claim on his life, though he knew what was coming that his costly road to Jerusalem would end in death, not him being shipped off somewhere else. And yet Jesus was the only one who was perfect, and he died. He died to give us hope. This is what Paul would write to that church in Rome. He'd eventually get there himself, but he wrote to them in Romans 15.4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May it be so, friends. Let me pray. Father, You are good and You are kind to give us Your Word, to teach us, so that we may have endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures. God, as we prepare to come to this table, as we prepare to take and eat, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be people who eat and drink with hope, that we would not hope in ourselves, our own merit, our own goodness, but as we consider these elements, that we would hope in the one that they represent, that we would be nourished by Jesus' very life and death and resurrection. We ask this in his name. Amen.